0: All right, so Robert McKee here, screenwriter, um, as I said, he wants us all writing good stories. Um, And he says uh, to all writers, if you write a scene with no turning point, that is, no point where your character's situation gets notably better or worse, then cut that scene out, just chop it out, and write another one. So my students will know that I always use Star Wars as an example. I apologize. (laughs) I know it's not even a comic book, right? Luke Skywalker has been having a rough day. He lost his droid. He got attacked by sand people, but things are looking up. He just got rescued by Obi-Wan Kenobi and learned that his father, amazingly enough, is a Jedi Knight. What could ruin the moment? What turns the scene from positive to negative? What keeps us interested enough to wonder what happens next? The death of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru is tragic for Luke, but great for the story. This moment launches the second act of the film, taking us to the Death Star, the rescue of Princess Leia, the death of Obi-Wan at the hands of Darth Vader, right? So Luke, Leia, Han, and Chewie escape the Death Star, right? The umpire's closing in. It's only a matter of minutes before the entire Rebel Alliance will be blasted into space rubble, and now for some reason... Luke has turned off his targeting computer. There is no way this can end well. Okay. So every good scene has a turning point. On the left, finally comics, right? After a great night on the town, things turn for the worse when Rorschach, the anti-hero, visits Dan Dryberg, formerly known as Night Owl, forcing Dan to confront his failures as he mopes in his uh, secret uh, hideaway there. Things turn from bad to good when the strange ghost that has been haunting the test facility coalesces into the transmogrified body of John Osterman, assumed to have been disintegrated in a nuclear accident, but now revealed as the superhuman Dr. Manhattan. All right. Little Bao is tormented by his uncles and sent alone to fetch water when suddenly he sees the mysterious girl, here masked with that red opera mask on, who will change his life forever, turning the scene from negative to positive. Now grown on the right-hand side, um, Bao confronts a group of armed men preparing to destroy his village. They mock him right um, uh, for standing up to these soldiers until he turns the scene from negative to positive, surprising everyone, All right. So each beat in a good scene, that is each exchange between characters is important and a well-written scene has no wasted beats in it. Something you guys, that we will talk about when we actually turn your story outlines into treatments and then scripts. So this is a good preview for that. uh, so every, every beat is important, but the most important beat in the scene is called the turning point, right? This is true in comics, just as it is in film and novels and other media. So that's why I read Robert Ruckey's book, because everybody recommended it when I was trying to teach myself how to write a comic script. So a film director signals turning points with cinematography, sound editing, performances, etc. When the Death Star blows up, of course, that's pretty dramatic. You kind of know it's a big turning point. A comic book artist signals turning points with page design, right? Um, so, my comics, guys, this is gonna be most relevant at the start of the second half of the semester, but we're gonna start touching on this soon, and it'll really help you to think about this stuff even when you're, before you've designed your pages when you're just writing it. So, um, fill a page with the same size shapes, and every shape has equal weight, like on the left there, right? Make one shape larger than the rest, and that shape becomes more important. In comics, shapes describe moments in the story, beats. So moments are, of course, story beats, and big moments, often literally big shapes, not always, but often, uh, just might be turning points. Contrast signals importance, right? Contrast of big against small, in this case. Dr. Manhattan is larger than the rest. Okay. If most of the shapes on your page are light, relatively light, your eye goes to the dark shape. And it goes without saying that the reverse is also true. If everything is dark, you go to the light thing, right? Contrast of value signals importance, right? So in this page by master cartoonist Jaime Hernandez, it's mostly white paper, right? So your eye goes Right to the dark shapes, to the black hair, the clothing, the facial features, and the poses that are blackened in, and some of the words too, especially the large, you know, the large bold words on there. If you have a tree filled with green leaves, your eye goes to the red apple, right on the on the right. Um, so for a character raised in a city that forbids bright clothing. The character on the left stands out. Actually, this is a really interesting comic called Chroma, um, by uh, Italian artist Lorenzo De Felici, and um, he's a colorist of comics and, and also a comic book artist. And um, he did the the entire story was based on uh, ideas of color, um, so the narrative itself is based on color. And there's this whole city of where they've forbidden color completely. Everybody's black and white. They have to paste out their skin and with white, you know, chalk. And when they leave the city, that there's this incredible bright world around them. So, it's a great book for teaching color theory. All right. Um, just as squares will stand out in a field of circles, so two ovals here against the rectangular panels and the rest of the page, right? and the spacing around an image can signal importance as well. The isolated image will draw attention as on the right. Even if something is very small, if it is isolated with lots of negative space around it, your eye will consider that more important. All right. In a row of newly planted seedlings, it is easy to spot the plant that your kid just knocked over I know this from experience, i tell you, it is absolutely true. In a page dominated by verticals and horizontals, your eye goes to the diagonal, and oftentimes that will be something depicting motion, even if it's kind of subtle here, the whack. All right, human beings love faces. We cannot get enough of them. Even if a face is small and includes no other kind of contrast, you will spend more time as a reader of comics looking at that face than anything else around it, right? Faces have weight. This is true in life, right? And it's true on a comic book page, right? So here on this page, there's lots of black stuff, but uh, do you spend time looking at his black T-shirt or do you spend all of your time focused on the faces on the page? Most likely the latter, right? If you have a class full of calmly meditating yoga students, right? the person who just stubbed her toe will stand out, right? Strong emotions, strong facial expressions, signal important moments in the story. Another page by Jaime Hernandez uh, from a book called this is, is This How You See Me? which is I think his most recent uh, Love and Rockets book. Have you, have you read any of that recent stuff? You know Love and Rockets though, right? Yeah. Y'all should read Love and Rockets. All right. Okay, dynamic poses stand out in a field of static or still poses, right? You can see that here easily, the monks down at the bottom all standing kind of mostly still. And now one final example of the basic design principles, right? Um, Something that's pretty unique to comics and a sequential narrative that reads in order like this, um, this is a, and, and then it's divided into pages. right? This is a great way to keep the reader turning those pages. If you can plan your layout and your beats on a page so that the last panel on a page raises a narrative question, that is, if the image in the lower right, and we're assuming that your comic reads left to right, top to bottom, so the lower right would be the last panel in, in a normal reading comic. If the image in the lower right makes the reader curious what happens next, Then, even if it's a small thing that they're curious about, you keep the story moving forward at least for one more page. This is often a little cliffhanger, sometimes a big one. So the little uh, blue guy in the lower right-hand corner is saying, if you can't read it, he's saying, listen, it's so easy, I can't believe it. We just bring the kid back to life. Right? All right. Okay. So now, uh, to illustrate all of these different design principles in context, and to talk again, get back to the idea of story beats and turning points in a scene. I'm gonna talk through uh, the, this eight page sequence of pages that are from my own comic. I didn't see how it looks on the screen. That's, that's pretty good. It's a little, little funky color, but not bad. Um, th- these are eight pages from my own comic that are they're almost done. <laughs> they're colored enough to show you guys. I'm still tweaking some of them. Um, and again, you guys, some of you guys in my class have seen these pages and I talked to them a little bit. But now I'm going to uh, really talk through in some detail how each of these different design principles is applied to finding those turning points um, on your scene, right? That you guys will soon be figuring out uh, on your in your own uh, stories. Which, in fact, some of you have already outlined some of those turning points, right? Whether you realize it or not. Okay. All right, so um, this eight-page sequence is made up of two distinct scenes, maybe three, Well, arguably. Um, I started making these pages as a demo for my comics class, um, which is, for those on YouTube watching, Art 106, runs spring semesters only. Shameless self-promotion, right? Um, But the pages here, these eight pages, ended up becoming a prologue to the long story I've been working on for many, many years. They actually became the first eight pages of my very long <laughs> graphic novel uh, that is not fun- done yet. Okay. So I'm going to kind of talk, I'm going to very quickly summarize what's happening on the page, and then I'm going to, in more detail, kind of talk through all, how I made all the design choices to show the important points and the turning points. Hannah is just trying to fill up her old truck, but gas prices are beyond outrageous. If you can see that, it says $27.99 a gallon up there. Right? Um, and now her hat's almost blown off by some damn city people showing up in their flying car. What in the world are they doing here? right? So Hannah's head at the top there and her facial expression are the largest on the page to emphasize her mood, her frustration. Um, her more rounded form... Um, compared and contrasted with the sharper angles throughout the rest of the page calls attention to her. The car and the city folks stand out because of their blue and orange colors popping against the yellow tones of the setting. The flying car, blue of course, also floats isolated relative to the other forms. The wedges of black ink lead your eye down the page from the upper left to the lower right with value contrast. Along the angled horizon line and tilted car in the middle panel We travel, our eye moves, sending your eye right down to the last panel in the lower right, where Hannah's pose draws your eye. Why is she photographing the bumper sticker on their car? Mini cliffhanger. All right, now. Moira, Lars and their robot enter the store. So the gal in orange is Moira, Lars is wearing the yellow shirt. They're looking for something, we don't know what yet. And Lars does not want Moira to get her hopes up. If you read the dialogue, this is what you get. Uh, Moira, however, has just spotted something amazing, right? As Hannah enters the store, shopkeeper Bill sees a chance to make some money. So Moira in orange is the largest on the page since she will be our main character for this sequence. Her facial expressions um, and her rounded shape, her orange dress, Her dynamic poses and isolated spacing all help us follow her progress over the page, which is otherwise very complicated. The dark shadows on the window wall help to frame Hannah coming in, even though she's very small. The black angled lines in the middle panel, which are the dark ceiling and lights, lead um, your eye right down to Moira's pregnant belly in the lower right corner of this uh, page. Bill sizes up these rubes and is clearly plotting something, right? So most of the visual weight on the page is on Moira, where her frustration turns to hope when she sees this thing on the wall, and her story turns from negative to positive. By emphasizing that moment and emphasizing her, I'm creating the point where the scene turns, and it went from negative to positive, right? Contrast. Signals importance, lots of contrast signals. Most important, most important is what you want the turning point in the scene to be. You see what I mean? Okay. All right. So Moira now uh, raves about a photograph on the wall. This is what she found. And Bill, the shopkeep, tries to sell it to her. Spies on them from a distance until Bill outs Hannah as the photographer of this picture that she likes. Hannah tries to run off while the robot takes interest in her. Moira stops Hannah with an offer. This is the end of the scene. Free gasoline in exchange for information about where Hannah shot the photo, right? Now the largest objects on the page are once again, he- they're once again heads, highlighting Bill the salesman, um, and Hannah's change from annoyed to intrigued, with her facial expression there, Hannah's round shape, isolated spacing, uh, uh, framing with black shapes around her, and finally color contrast with her pinkish, pinkish-purple pinkish face. Right, All of these things add importance to Hannah's emotions. Moira and the robot are small, but noticeable because of their blue-orange color. Hannah's and Moira's poses with arms folded against the body also add weight to those story beats relative to some pretty, you know, static poses, right? Um, the tilted horizon that you can see in the lower left there animates Hannah as she's moving out the door and hints how fast she's moving, right? You tilt that horizon line. What do they call that in Dutch angle, I think, in film? You guys ever seen the old Batman TV series, right? With, uh, yeah, <laughs> from the 60s. And whenever they go in the Joker's lair, they would tilt the camera, right? So it feels like, okay. All right, um, So the tilted horizon in the lower right animates her and hints at how fast she's going. And I echoed that same angle in Hannah's face in the lower right corner. Um, And that's the little mini cliffhanger for this page. Will Hannah accept Moira's offer or not? Turn the page to find out, right? Leave him hanging, leave him wondering. Get him to turn the page, right? The overall scene ends with a turn from Negative to positive, that is, they have found something that they were looking for. That's the positive uh, turn. Before that, they were uncertain, right? Now they are hopeful that they might have a lead, something to do with this photograph on the wall. A photograph of a, like, a Bigfoot thing, if you read through the story. Okay, cut to scene two. In the field, presumably the field where Hannah shot the photo, now this answers the na- narrative question. Moira, Lars, and the robot are somewhere in this field, and they seem to be on the search. So we can assume Hannah told them where to go. That answers that question. Moira is warning Lars, this better not be a wild goose chase. The robot tugs on Moira's skirt and points. Their quarry, the thing they're looking for, is right in front of them. A huge creature sits hunched on the grass, oblivious to the searchers. Moira and Lars are overjoyed. The creature, of course, is clearly the most important thing on the page indicated by the large size, the isolated spacing, the darker values, and a range of violet tones contrasted against the greens and blues. The shift to a violet color scheme adds you know, intensity and dis-ease um, to the joyful moment of discovery, so hints that there's something kind of dis- disturbing about this. Uh, and Lars are small, but their orange and yellow clothing pop um, on, against the greens of the page. Um, and their strong facial expressions also make them stand out. The round panels, the round you know, panel borders there, um, stand out due to their strong color contrast and shape contrast. Right? So the scene shifts from negative to positive as the discovery is made, and a new cliffhanger ends the page. What the heck is this thing? Okay. All right. Okay. Into scene two. As the trio gingerly approaches, the creature screams. Moira clutches her belly in pain. As the creature runs away, Moira speaks to the creature and it stops. The creature turns and cautiously approaches. It's close now. The creature and Moira both, however, double over in pain. The creature disintegrates into a pile of stuff while Moira and Lars mourn in the last panel. So there's a lot of stuff that happens on this page. It was actually really hard to fit all this on one page when I did it, but I managed to do it. I was actually really happy when I was done. Um, So. I wanted the focus to be, in spite of all the beats that happen, on the creature disintegrating. It's almost, also almost a wordless page, but that didn't really matter, it was really complex. Um, I wanted the focus to be on the moment of disintegration, so I made it get pinkishy purple color, right? Um, contrasting it. I made it oval. I made the creature large in that panel. I made the pose really dynamic. Um, I made the creature coming in at an angle, Um, and, of course, there's the face itself, the screaming face of the creature featuring deep, dark eye sockets and mouth. All of those things bring attention to that turning point where things move from positive to negative. A hopeful discovery becomes a tragic loss, and we are left with that narrative question at the end, wait a minute, what's going to happen next, and why is that little robot picking up the necklace of flowers onto the next page. All right, so now the two are mourning their loss and Moira says to Lars, hey, wait a minute, look at the robot and she smiles a little bit. The robot in turn looks at Moira and Lars holding a piece of the creature in its hands. Moira is joyful and that's a turning point again for the scene. Um, She welcomes the robot as if it just arrived which is weird. The robots have been there since before they got to the store, but she says, welcome. What the heck does that mean? And what is happening to Moira, again, at the bottom there when she winces in pain? So Moira's face and expressions anchor the story beats throughout the page. It's a pretty crowded page, but we follow her face throughout. Um, the dark and large robot in the bottom uh, and the violet color scheme in that, page, in that panel at the bottom Emphasize the mystery, what's going on with this robot, right? The reds in the lower right, that little round panel down there, highlight Moira's pain, as of course does the round uh, panel shape. Moira is grimacing, right? Um, and that inspires us to turn the page to find out what happened. All right. So these last couple of pages are not totally done with their coloring. So they look a little less, I mean, I, you probably don't even see it, I, <laughs> I see it. All right, okay, now, uh, second to last page. Moira is bleeding and she rejects Lars's help, but she embraces the robot. So this page is also anchored by Moira's face and emotions and her pose, right? The large close-ups of her belly and face also add weight to her story beats. The round panel in the lower right, right? You've got a shape contrast there. It's also also, the color in it is desaturated, meaning grayed out, right? Compared to the rest of the page. Um, e- emphasizing the turn of the scene from positive to negative again. Um, and inspiring the reader to keep going. It's not going. There we go. There we go. On the last page of the sequence, uh, we cut to a nearby hilltop. Hannah kneels next to a mysterious individual who is shocked by what he sees through his rifle scope. Right, that is Hannah, and Lars, and the robot. Um, The round shape and orange color immediately draw your eye to the upper left and the scene visible through the scope. The red jacket and also the large expressive faces and dark hair draw attention to this mystery man and Hannah, highlighting their reactions, right? So this entire sequence of eight pages through two scenes and many story beats takes us to an overall ironic ending. What does that mean? Um, That means that there are both positive and negative turns that you're left with. There's positive things that happened, such as the successful search and the discovery of this robot. Um, but that success is accompanied by some unavoidable negative consequences, Moira's pain, as well as the attention of Hannah and this gun-wielding fellow um, whose intentions remain unknown. So this sets up a mood of suspense and hopefully uh, inspires the reader on to the next chapter. Right. All right. Okay. Okay, so talking through that was easy for me to do as illustrations of these points because I made it. It was really easy for me to (laughs) analyze it, save me some time as opposed to analyzing somebody else's thing. Um, um, But the point I'm going to make as we go forward is that every artist is using the same design principles. Even if their work looks nothing at all like somebody else's work, the principles are applied in a similar way um, or in their own unique way. right? So to that end, we're gonna wrap things up today with a look at this year's one book, one college text. As uh, Troy mentioned, this book is called Seek You by Kristen Radke. And this is a work from 2021. It's her second major graphic novel. Um, and it's really more of a graphic essay um, with elements of memoir in it. So it's nonfiction. Um, but we'll see that the same design elements that worked in a fantasy genre like mine work equally well In nonfiction. Um, The title of the book, Seek You, refers just really quickly here to a phrase that amateur radio operators use. According to Radke, in context, the phrase means something like, is there anyone out there? She introduces the phrase as a metaphor for something that we all do throughout our lives. Over 300 plus pages, she examines the factors that influence our experience of loneliness and our efforts to overcome it. So the first seven pages of the book illustrate uh, some typical devices that she uses throughout the work as she develops her thoughts over a sequence of pages. Note, um, let's get here to this page, right? Here's this first sequence, right? The limited use of color. There's high value contrast on the page. Um, There's often sharp angles that bring your eye from the upper left down to the lower right zooming your eye along the direction of reading. She often fills the page with large images, as you can see here, right? So she doesn't use a grid as kind of a standard baseline. She uses this own, her own unique kind of composition, but these are sort of standard pages, right? All right, so here's the same sequence of pages, a little smaller, and then what I want to point out here is that she ends the sequence on this page, right? Zooming in to it, we can see it here, right? Notice how she's using light, contrasting dark. She's got bright yellow and orange contrasting the general blue-gray color scheme, the isolated position of the shape, right? All of those design choices work together to highlight the sense of connection achieved here by the radio operator. She's talking about, you know, that CQ phrase, All right. Okay. All right. So she repeats this motif of the, the little bright colored thing in a field of emptiness. Um, she repeats that motif throughout the first section of the book. You can see in these various end-of-sequence pages. Right here. So in each of them, they, they're not all together. They come at the end of different sequences. She's got this sense of light and life indicated by the small little colorful window isolated, a point of color in a grid of gray. Now, here's a reprise of that first image we saw that had a bit of color in it. And she uh, will uh, reprise almost the exact same image verbatim 150 pages later uh, at the beginning of the chapter about technology, which is on the right there. So she's drawing a parallel between her father finding connection with the radio from page 26 on the left, and then her self-seeking community over the internet on page 183. So you have to remember that you saw that image <laughs> before when you get there, right? There's a lot of things reading this book that you have to remember, right? She comes back to it. You'll see in a second. All right. So in many sections of the book, um, this is, again, that beginning sequence, she'll punctuate a long wordy section with a sequence of mostly wordless panels. So she's, the text of the book is a long essay about loneliness, right? Um, and we're seeing these images with it. But then she breaks into this wordless section, right? So these pages function as a kind of a resting point for the reader and they often feature metaphorical imagery that illuminates some kind of key concept from the previous section, right? So here again, those same three pages on the bottom in sequence, the pages that precede them up top, the ones that have all kinds of words on them, right, Um, so you can see she's using strong value contrast on these three pages, isolated spacing, scale contrast, focus on facial elements, all of these things add weight to that wordless sequence relative to what came before, um, showing how the signal sent never quite reaches the figure who appears to float in outer space. Again, a metaphor for our experience of loneliness and our failure to connect. So the individual is frustrated in their efforts to make that human connection, right? So again, one of the important points that I'm making here is that contrast doesn't just happen on a single page, which is what I was going into the nitty-gritty with on my pages, but it happens between pages, too, right? So there's a set of design choices that dominate the first eight pages um, above, and then it's contrasted with that three-page wordless sequence below. She shifts gears design-wise, all right? Okay. Okay. So jumping around here a little bit, the second half of the book is divided into three large sections, and each section is painted with a unique color scheme. Within the section, it's mostly monochromatic, blacks and whites and a single color, with small exceptions to that. The first of these sections is called click in the upper left, and it's dominated by that blue-gray color. In that section, Radke discusses communications technology and how computers and the internet and other tools um, affect our efforts to transcend loneliness right? And then moving from that cool blue-gray color into the kind of slightly warmer brownish colors, brownish-tannish, the section is called touch, and it's built around that other color scheme. Um, It's about the human need for connection, including literal physical contact, um, and how people change when they're deprived of that connection, right? Oops. Oops going back again Um, and then the third and final section of the book is called listen Um, it's a short section at the end and this is the closest that she gets to offering a solution to the problem of loneliness Um, to put it in really simple terms she suggests that we have to have the will to send a signal and the willingness to receive a signal and so the warm orange color she uses in that final section offers a sense of visual comfort and a respite from the dull colors that preceded, the relatively dull colors, right? And you can see, looking at the three together, that there's this gradual move from cool to warm, metaphorically suggesting the movement from isolation to communion. So in this case, you have to remember half of the book what the colors were like <laughs> beforehand. And I'm sure none of you, reading this, probably noticed any of that when you read it, or did you? You didn't notice it at all, right? Yeah. And this is why Scott McCloud calls comics the invisible art, because you're seeing it and you're responding to it, and you have no, you're have you not conscious of what you're seeing if the designer has done their job. You saw, I pointed all those things out on the page, and you go, oh, oh, yeah, okay. But when you're reading it, you just experience the story. You experience the content. You don't even notice what, that you're doing it through vision and sight, right? The story's just there which is kind of weird. Weird for me when I see people read books and I realize they they have no consciousness of what they've actually seen. They just know the story, it's weird. Okay, so um, thinking back to the fictional stories we talked about earlier, there's a natural question that may suggest itself to you, or at least it did to me, which is what exactly does a turning point mean in a work of nonfiction, right? Um, and that means sense when the characters go from a positive to a negative story value. So in some parts of CQ, especially the memoir sections, it's literally a narrative, right? Um, there are turning points that function the same way they would in um, a work of fiction, b- beats where the person's life gets notably better or worse, the making the connection with the computer there is, is highlighted, right? Or with the radio in that case, sorry. In other parts of the book, she demonstrates that an effective turning point in a work of nonfiction, uh, which is something that I never really thought about because I don't read a lot of nonfiction comics. There actually aren't that many of them that exist. There are a few. Um, but here she demonstrates that a work of nonfiction can simply be a strong illustration of a main idea, right? So the octopus here, uh, for example, is a metaphorical representation of the effect of the expression of human genes the influences that affect the expression of human genes. Get it, right? In the context of the book, you get it, right? And you read some of the text around it. So it's completely metaphorical, a very striking metaphorical representation of a highly abstract concept, keeping you engaged in that idea, okay? So in this sequence, which is right after that metaphor of the octopus, um, she contrasts a technical discussion of the neurobiology of loneliness, again, this very dry scientific idea, uh, which is in the written text, with a very lyrical set of images that function as an extended metaphor for the feeling of being overwhelmed by loneliness as this character dives into the ocean and sinks into its depths, right? And then is overwhelmed by this giant wave at the end. So that's what you're seeing as you're reading about, you know, the neurobiology of loneliness in the brain. Okay, all right. So on these uh, couple pages, uh, Radke is using very strong design choices to highlight images that add layers of meaning that are not present in the text, but naturally follow from it. And these are the parts of the book that I got the most joy from because they were the most pure comics stuff stuff that you can't do in normal prose in the same way. On the left, the text presents an overview of the mental state known as hypervigilance. This is what you're reading. So this is a psychological term uh, indicating a state where people become hypersensitive to rejection, right? Which leads us to do all kinds of awful things. Radke's text says nothing at all about a bar or alcohol or alcoholism. She just puts those images there while she's talking about hypervigilance, leaving the reader to make the connection for themselves. It's pretty obvious what the connection she's suggesting is, but she never states it in words, right? And then similarly, on the right-hand side, the text, what she's writing, is about overprotected children, right? So parents who always tell their kids, do not ever trust strangers, ever, right? And of course, there are studies saying that Um, If you do this, um, you really affect these children's psychology, right? Um, This can lead to problems in the future. And she never says a word about uh, racial bias or racism, but the image there, if you look at it closely, is in the reddish orange in the lower right is a little white family and the black family in purple up above, right? Again, suggesting that possibly there might be a connection between telling your kids never to trust anybody they don't know and racial bias, again, totally in the images but not in the text itself all right and then finally another uh, one example I really liked a lot um, more personal in this case um, in the second section of the book this is um, she has a discussion of American popular culture including our fixation on rugged individualism and so at the beginning of that section you can see the image on the upper left she's talking about the cowboy and Westerns right um, and then, after a long discussion of other topics, 50 pages later, you get the image in the lower right there. Right? In this case, she's in a section of memoir where she's talking about her own life and her husband. She's talking here specifically in the words about her husband's justification for owning a gun, which they have a strong argument about. This is a point of contention for them. Right? She doesn't accuse her husband of acting like a cowboy. She doesn't accuse him of having something broken in himself that inspires his attitude toward guns yet she absolutely does do both of those things. She just does it in images rather than in words, right? Okay. All right. So that was a lot of stuff in a somewhat short period of time. So my hope is that you can see from all these examples that there's a lot of thought that goes into designing a graphic novel and the unique juxtaposition of words and images used in comics offers amazingly great complexity and layering of meaning. Um, and that there are literally infinite uh, stories that you can t- tell through the medium of comic books in every conceivable genre, from fantasy to nonfiction and everything else, and in as many different styles as there are artists who make them. And that, in spite of that complexity, in spite of all that great variety in what you can do, the basic set of tools, the design principles that go behind all of those different kinds of stories are the same things, right, applied in in very different ways. All of those design tools are used to highlight story beats and especially those turning points in the story that keep the reader turning the page. And that's what I got. (laughs) Thank you. And I think we still have a few minutes if anybody wants to ask a question. Anybody at all? I know my comic students have the most articulate questions and they're just, they're being selfless and they're letting other people speak. They don't want to share their, <laughs> I'm teasing you guys. Yes? Uh, this is more personal, but how long you been working on Uh Oh, uh, she asked how long I have been working on my comic. Um, it's gone through different iterations where I stopped it and started it over again. So if you go all the way back, 2007, um but i i completely redid the entire thing about three or four years ago so the real the real version is is that yeah and now that i drew these pages like most everything else that i had that was art wise became a rough draft and these are going to be the finished pages. So my plan is to stick these up on my website sometime soon once they're fully done, which is they're really close to being. And then I can start just posting the other pages as I finish them. So, yeah. So the yeah. Of yeah. People's attention, yes. So do you have to put it all in one page or is it just more effective to use more? Uh, more strategies, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is something my, my wife, when I was showing her my thing, she's like, you might not show every single example on every page. And I'm like, but I did all of those things on the page. Um, n- no, there's no rule that says you have to use every single one of those on every single page. I didn't actually. I mean, there was some some stuff I left off, if you noticed it. But no, um, it's you know, it might just be one thing, right? Um, but more likely than not, you're going to have at least a few of those things. It's w- whatever ones you need, right? And of course, we will... We'll talk about them more and you guys will have a chance to practice and experiment and try stuff out. Yeah, totally. Anything else? All right. Thank you guys so much, Troy. Really, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, YouTube.